PPC family. I already feel welcome here. The first three people that I met were engineers. And my background is engineering. I spent 25 years in engineering, and it was just a pleasure to meet fellow engineers. So I feel welcome here. But uh, I'm from Palm Bay, a Covenant Church in Palm Bay, Florida. If you don't know, that's about an hour, a little bit of an hour east and south of here. And you may not know this, uh, but there is a relationship between Covenant, Palm Bay, and UPC. There's been a number of people to go back and forth between the churches. And I think the very most recent one, not probably coincidentally, is my son actually started attending here about three, three weeks ago. Uh, he's finishing up his studies at, at uh, UCF, and so he started attending this church. But also, um, we've been engaged in work similar to you guys. We've been working with Pablo Torres. We've been working with Donnie St. Germain. And I'm wondering if I dig into the missions, the global mission stuff, that we probably are partnering in similar ways to plant churches around the world. So it's just good to be among brothers and sisters. And so this morning, uh, I wanted to bring to you a message about the church. Uh, back in Palm Bay, we are doing a summer series on wonderful words. We're doing all sorts of theological words like sanctification and sovereignty and predestination. But I thought this word church uh, would be very instructive for us this morning. And so I want to do it through the lens of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to read it for you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 27, and I'm going to be reading it in the English Standard Version. Would you hear God's word? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink. Of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If an ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? 
Almighty God and Heavenly Father, you are amazing, God. You are uncontainable. You are indescribable. And there is no other God like you. And you're worthy of all of our praise. And we thank you, O oh God, that we can come before you boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us, laying down his life so that we could be brought into the family of God. And we give you praise and thanks this morning for that. And Heavenly Father, this morning as we open your word and through the preaching of the word, may my words be your words. And would you prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive what you would have for us this morning that we'd be transformed into the likeness of your Son. And Lord, may I be hidden behind that beautiful, that glorious, but terrible cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm going to start off with a meme, because memes, go ahead and put it up. They tell a little bit of, of truth. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what it, you think it means. Now, who's going to admit that they know where this comes from? Okay, yeah. And you know who that guy is. That's Inigo Montoya. He said, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yes. Yes. So you know it. Great. I think of this, these words sometimes when I hear other Christians talk about that word church, when they use church and they say, for example, I've heard this, you know, instead of Sunday morning showing up at church, I'm going to go to Starbucks with my friend and we're going to trade some Bible verses and pray and we're going to do church that way. Or maybe you've heard it this way. I'm too tired to get up and go to church. I'm going to stay in my pajamas. I'm going to eat my Cocoa Puffs and drink coffee sit on the couch and take in the live stream, and that's how I'm going to do church this morning. And I want to say to them, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Okay, now, for those of you who are online, I think we are live streaming, don't, don't close the browser quite yet, okay? <laughs> we do know that God has blessed us with great technology where we can beam the word all across the planet. There are legitimate uses of this technology but I hope you're going to stick with me as we unpack this word church to see what the Bible itself says about church. And if you stick with me to the end, you're going to see that this idea of a churchless Christian, well, it's just, it's inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, so I want to jump into chapter 12, but before we do that, we have to set a little bit of context. We have to know what this is about. So I'm going to take you all the way back to chapter 1 and look at the introduction. And hear these words. This is Paul speaking to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. First of all, Paul is writing to a specific church. He is writing to a geographically based church. Note that. It's very important. We know that Paul wrote uh, letters to other churches, like the churches in Galatia, the church of Thessalonica. He's not just writing to someone sitting at Starbucks. When we look at the context here, he's giving instructions to an actual church. And yes, we can take that and we can sit at Starbucks and apply it to our life, but I want you to, to note that. 
And so this word church that he's using here in chapter 1, it's a Greek word. Many of you guys know it. It's ekklesia, ekklesia. Uh, and we can, we can start to unpack what ekklesia means by looking at its etymology, okay? Etymology, okay? So we started out with memes, and now we're somehow headlong into linguistics. But hang with me here, okay? Uh, ek, ekaleo uh, means called out ones, called out ones, okay? And it somewhat gives us an idea of what that word means, but it doesn't give the full picture. So we have to be careful just resting on etymology to determine the definitions. For example, if I told you butterfly and you wanted to break that up into butter and fly, you're not going to get a, a picture of what a butterfly really is, right? And some of you visual people are having this picture of a stick of butter going through the air with wings on it, right? <laughs> What's more important when we look at a word in the scriptures, we need to understand what was the author intending to say. We need to understand what the audience heard when they heard that word church and it turns out that that word church it was used for several hundred years before the church age and hear what greek scholars lou and nita say about it they say this it's a congregation of christians implying interacting membership the term ecclesia was in common usage for several hundred years before the christian era and was used to refer to an assembly of persons constituted by well-defined membership, an assembly of persons, okay? And so you and I, when we hear church, we impose upon it all the things that we think of today, but we have to transport ourselves back in time and think like the Corinthians would have thought when they heard ecclesia. I'm going to take it one step further, so bear with me. The Septuagint, which some of you know, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, okay? And realize this. The Jews of the day, they didn't all read Hebrew. They didn't all speak the language there. The, the common language was Greek. And so the Bible that they had was translated into Greek. And here's the interesting thing. When, whenever you see that word assembly in the Old Testament, oftentimes the translator, what, what word did he choose when he went to the Greek translation? He chose the word ekklesia. He chose the word church. And so picture this, when Moses is calling the people of God to assemble before him at Mount Sinai, that's what we're talking about, that formal assembly of people before the Lord. And you can't ever imagine the fact that there's going to be a couple Hebrews sitting in their tent saying, you know, we're just going to do it our way. It's a little bit more spiritual or organic to, to do our own thing. You know, this assembly looks a little bit too formal for us. But the word tells us that it's a public assembly a formal assembly of people much like we're doing today and dare i say that it has these elements of organization and institution okay and young people are like cringing they're cringing okay and i and i get it because organizations and institutions those sorts of things today for the young people growing up with the information age they're looking at companies, big companies, they're looking at the government, and sadly, they're looking at the organized church, and the church has lost credibility. But it's consistent with the teaching of scriptures that the church is an organization. It is an institution created by God. 
And if we look a little bit in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we can see that, in fact, Paul is giving structure. He's giving organization to the church. He's giving them rules for things, how to behave in worship, how to do the Lord's Supper, right? How to discipline people. And when we look at other books like 1 Timothy and Titus, it's taken a step further. How to have leaders in the church. You know, Paul was telling Titus, set in order what remains. Appoint elders in every city. That sounds a little bit like some structure, some organization. And that's what the church of God is. And so this idea of it's just you, me, in the Bible and a cup of coffee doing church, that's not what we see in the scriptures. Church is used a second way in the scriptures that you should know about. And theologians call this the invisible church. It's a little bit more abstract. Um, it's less concrete. And what it is, it's the elect of God, all of God's people, all over the planet, throughout all time. It's all believers. That's the invisible church. And what we see in this passage is the visible church. And so you should know that in the New Testament, the, the invisible church, that abstract idea, is used about 20% of the time. 80% of the time, the scriptures are talking about something specific. Something just like what is happening here this morning. And I want you guys to grab a hold of this takeaway truth that the visible, the practical, the tangible expression of the church, it's found in the local assembly of believers. Okay? And so what we're seeing today in modern Christianity, you guys might be seeing this, this spiritual, spiritual organic movement. You, me, in the Bible, Panera, Starbucks, we can do it. Uh, we can meet in a house. We don't need elders. We don't need leaders. Uh, we don't need form. What they're doing is they're grabbing a hold of one part of the definition of church, the invisible church. And they're beginning to ignore all that scripture says about the visible church. It's practical. It's tangible outworkings. Do you see what I'm saying here? Overemphasizing the invisible. In other words, yes, when you're at Starbucks and you're there with your buddy with the Bible open, you are the invisible church. I'll give you that. You are. Thank God we, that you are. Um, and when you're live streaming and you're on the couch and you're worshiping maybe with your family, you can do that. And thank God that it's not the building, it's the people. That's the invisible church. It's leaving out the visible church, the formal assembly of God's people. And we see this going on in Christianity today. So, in our passage, moving fast forward to chapter 12, we're going to look at three distinct elements of this Corinthian church, this local assembly. We're going to look at its diversity, its interdependence, and its unity. And the church's diversity, um, you're going to be able to see this in verses 4, 12, and 13. I won't read it for you, um, but it's going to be there on the screen. If you look at this passage, you're going to see that the church is diverse in many different ways. It mentions gifts, the variety of gifts. They had all sorts of gifts. In chapter 1, Paul says they didn't lack anything. In fact, when you read the book, Paul is addressing misuses of some of those gifts, right? So they had a variety of gifts. And along with a variety of gifts, you get what? You get a lot of different personality types. Okay, so they're diverse in that way. But they're also diverse ethnically, maybe by race. And I'm going to use this word culture 
because it's, it, it's, it's broader than that, okay? Think about Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Greeks brought together into one body, what that means. These are people that ate differently, they believed differently, they were raised differently. You know, a young Greek boy would be brought up uh, with the Greek philosophers. A young Hebrew boy would be going to, to the temple and being schooled in the scriptures. They have a different worldview. They have different political views, too. You know, we, you know, we think the church is divided between red state and blue state. They had a massive, massive political you know, opposition in the church, right? It's the ruled and the ones that are being ruled over. That's how different it was. You know, it says in Acts chapter 10, you know, that account where Peter is, is going to visit Cornelius, he said, you know, it's not lawful for us to associate with you. You know, last I checked, Republicans and Democrats can associate with each other, thank God. But that's, that's a picture of what's going on in the early church. And then socially and economically, you know, the scripture says Jews and, I mean, slaves and free. That speaks to social status and that speaks to economic status. And so you had the high and the low. You had the, the people of high position and low position. You had the rich and the poor. You had all sorts of people coming into the early church at Corinth. It was a hot mess of diversity. And the question is, did it work well? Did it function well? Well, if you've read the book, <laughs> if you've read the book at all, you know that it didn't work well at all. It didn't work well at all. It was a majorly dysfunctioning church, right? Lawsuits, you know, members filing lawsuits against other members. Chaos in worship. In the early part of the, the book, they talk about factions. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. I mean, we think we have it bad here, but look at the church at Corinth. Sexual immorality, leaders that needed to be trained on how to do the Lord's Supper and gain control. That's a lot going on in a very messy church. Most of us, if we were visiting the church at Corinth, we would have walked into that church and took one look, and then we would have walked right back out. And I don't want you guys to miss this. The church is messy. The church is a mess of diversity. All sorts of different types of peoples who have different ideas. And God is sanctifying her. And so I don't want you to, to latch on to this idea that there is a perfect church. And I think some of you know what I'm talking about. We all know the people that go from church to church to church looking for that perfect church. You know, you, you walk in, you say... I don't like that one thing the pastor said, or I don't like that instrument that they're using. The music's too loud. The music's too soft. The chairs are too hard. The chairs are too soft. It's too hot, too cold. Um, there is not the perfect church here. There's not the perfect church here. We tend these days, and it's a sad thing that's happening in Western Christianity, we tend to bring our consumer culture to the church. And you know what I mean by that? You know, we don't ever go out to a restaurant anymore without whipping out the phone and looking at Yelp. Okay, what's its rating? Four stars or above. That's the only restaurants we're going to go to. Or perhaps you know this, if you're buying something on Amazon, are you the type of person that has to read all the 10,000 reviews before you buy that $2.99 item? <laughs> 
right? It has to be highly rated. But what would have happened if we had Google reviews back in the day of the Corinthian church? And you pulled it up on the phone, you were visiting Corinth, and you pulled it up on the phone, you would saw a half a star rating. And you would have started reading all the, the Google reviews. It would have been horrible, horrible. Wow, we would have never poked our head in to see what God was doing amidst that messy group of people. Now, I know I do want to acknowledge this. There is something very good in our hearts when we want to see the perfect, when we want to see the ideal. Hear this word from Revelation. This is the perfect and the ideal. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and tongues and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the picture of the beautiful, perfect church of the future. But we live in the already, but not yet. We have that longing, but that's not what we experience here today. Go ahead and put up this, this, the next picture of the stained glass. Um, I've got a great friend back in Palm Bay. He's known to the congregation as a craftsman. He, he builds a lot of woodworking and whatnot, and he dabbles in all sorts of things like fused glass and stained glass. Uh, I wish it was bigger and brighter um, for you guys to see, but it's uh, spend a little time and gaze at those little pieces of glass that he made, all the different shapes and sizes and colors, okay, and how beautiful it is. It speaks something about my good friend Mark and his power to create and power to bring together all these different pieces into something beautiful. It speaks about his creativity. It speaks about his wisdom. And that's what God is doing with the church here on earth. He's bringing together all sorts of different types of people, shapes and sizes and colors and personalities and giftings and whatnot. And he's knocking off different edges of each of us and he's fitting us together into one beautiful picture, that beautiful picture of the church, and we long for it. Don't let that picture of the perfect dissuade you from jumping into the present mess of the church today. Please don't let that happen. God is using the messiness of church in so many different ways. And one of the ways he's using it is to sanctify us. He's allowing us to grow in the gospel of grace. We have to realize that, that the road of sanctification, it's an unpleasant road at times. It's a very unpleasant road. It's, it's easy to give up. It's easy, especially in Western culture, to check out, to leave, to find another place, and to keep bouncing from place to place. It's much harder to stick with the people of God, to stick with the church, and to bear with one another's burdens, and to have God knock off the rough edges in someone else, but also, also in me as he's making his beautiful picture. Well, secondly, I want you guys to see the church's interdependence in this passage. Um, Paul here in verses 14 through 21 and 26, he is, he's giving this great metaphor to show you how we are interdependent. Not dependent, but we're interdependent, okay? 
He's using this metaphor of the body, and one of, it's kind of like an ecosystem, like the swamp, you know. You got the water and the grasses and the mosses and the plants and the trees and the bugs, the animals. Everything is necessary for it to function and operate it at its very best. What happens if you take out one piece of that ecosystem? Things begin to shift. Things begin to change, and it doesn't function as it was intended to be. That's what Paul is saying here about the church, what he's saying about you guys. For UPC to function correctly, every one of you is necessary. Every one of you belongs. Every one of you is indispensable. You are a part of a whole. You are a part of a body. And he needs you to be there. He needs you to be here, to serve, to be part of the process of sanctification that's going on. And I want to take it one step further, because the scripture does this. The scripture says that those parts that we, in human terms, think are weaker or without honor, those parts are more honorable. Those parts are indispensable. And there's so many ways that we can apply this. But I want to apply it maybe in this way. Think of, the, think of the folks that might be disabled. Think of the folks that can't serve in a, in a particular way that you would like to see. Think of certain personalities that you're not sure why that personality is in the church. Or think of certain people that might have mental disabilities. You realize that God has placed them in this church and he says to you, they are with honor. They are indispensable for us. And when we look at human terms and we look at our economy, how things work, we say, well, that person can't give, that person can't serve. How is that person helping this body here at UPC advance the mission of the gospel? But God's wisdom is different than our wisdom. His ways are different than our ways. And he puts those people in our midst because he's doing a mighty work among us. He's transforming the ethos of the church. He's sanctifying us. He's allowing us to slow down. He's allowing us to adorn that gospel of grace, the one that we preach so easily but we find so difficult to flesh it out. Those people are among us. They should be honored. Well, lastly, I want to look at the church's unity. And this is, this is all over the passage. If you, if you look at it, it's everywhere. And I'm glad to just... The worship this morning was incredible. It's just how it's all woven to that together, um, the scriptures and the songs and whatnot about the unity of the church. And we see this in verse 27. That's the verse I want you guys to camp out on. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The church is one in Christ. It's not, you know, many Christ. There's only one Christ. There's one body. And Jesus calls you his special thing. He calls you his body. Though we are this hot mess of diversity of all different types of people, political persuasions, personalities, and whatnot, we are one in Christ. And we are joined to him in union with him when we come to him by faith. And we are joined to each other. Okay? Some of you guys kind of groan with that. You know, when you come to Christ... You, you get joined to him in union with him, but you get us all. We are kind of a package deal. Everyone comes together, this beautiful, glorious mess that he's bringing together. 
And the scripture uses another metaphor to explain this union with Christ. Uh, In Ephesians, Paul says it this way, For no one has ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that when you look at marriage and the intimacy, the oneness that should be there between a man and a woman, that's the type of intimacy Christ has with the church. That's the type of intimacy that Christ has with UPC. Joined together. That means we're joined together with him. We're joined together with each other. This union is so real that, that Jesus, when he confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's saying the church is him. That's how vital this union is. It's so vital that this is what Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see what he's saying there? It's as if Paul himself was crucified on the cross. And herein, brothers and sisters, is our great salvation and our great motivation as well. That Christ, when we are in union with him by faith, he takes our sins and he nails them to the cross. And when we are in Christ and when when the Lord looks at us, he no longer sees our sins. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in him. We are hid. Our life is hid in Christ. Praise God that it is such. And this is the motivation. Now, why would we want to engage in such a messy affair as church? Why would we want to endure things like what we're going through? When we look and see that Jesus endured much more for us. He laid down his life. He purchased the church of God with his blood. So then how can we not also want to engage in this beloved body that he loves so much? And so if you're here this morning, you're a believer, I encourage you this way. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church And we thank God and we praise God that Jesus did not give up on us. He laid down his life for the church. If you're here this morning and you were brought by a friend or you're still investigating, what is this thing, church? What is this? Who is this person, Jesus? And I'm glad that you came this morning. And I've kind of pulled back the veil a little bit for you to say that we are a messy people. We are a broken people. I am a broken person every day needing the grace of God, and every day needing to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. And I invite you to join in, to join the messiness of church. Christ died so that you can join into this body and have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful. We are stunned and we are in awe that the king of heaven would come down and live this life, bear our brokenness and sin on the cross so that we could be 
one so that we could be a body, so that we could be assembled here this morning in all of our messiness, in all of our brokenness, our sin and our shame, praising you, worshiping you, declaring that you are all we need, Lord. Lord, we, we exalt you. We worship you this morning. We give you all of our thanks and your praise. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.